So you're sitting on a launch pad in Cape Canaveral, Florida. You're strapped in to the seat of a rocket looking at the blue expanse of sky above you. And there's this countdown ticking away in the headphones that you're wearing inside some sort of safety helmet. And you know that in seconds, you're gonna be launched with all of the thrust of this massive machine pushing upwards into space. I don't know what you're feeling at this moment, but there are butterflies in your stomach. And then you hear from Mission Control, three, two, one, launch. And there you are. The G-forces are intense. They're pushing you back into your seat. You may not even be able to raise your hands. And uh, it's, it's the most intense force that your body has ever felt. And it's going to go on for seven minutes straight until you clear the stratosphere. You disconnect that large red rocket from your space shuttle. And then all of a sudden, you're floating. All of those forces that were playing on your body, distorting your face, gone eerily silent. You check in with mission control and everything looks good as your spacecraft rotates. And there below you is the most beautiful sight you have ever seen in your entire life. This blue expanse of the sky that you were looking at from below, but now is above you. And you can see the entire earth, the entire cradle of humanity. And you realize in this moment that we are all connected. This experience, this, this idea of that when the astronaut goes into space as being a transformative experiment is known as the overview effect. And there is a lot of literature about it. You know, one cosmonaut from the Soviet Union, a guy named Boris Volnyov, he described the overview effect in this way. During a space flight, the psyche of each astronaut is reshaped. Having seen the sun, the stars, and our planet, you become more full of life, softer. You begin to look at all things with greater trepidation, and you begin to be more kind and patient with the people around you. There is this sense of unity that people who have been to space describe. It is this wonder it is awe and it is transformative. People, time and again, we've spent about, uh, about five or 600 people into space and about two thirds of them report this sort of transformative experience. So there's this patron saint of physics and astronomy that I've quoted before here on this podcast, a guy named Carl Sagan, one of the most brilliant minds ever to have existed on Earth. And he's quoted in a paper that I'm going to talk about in this podcast as sort of the, as the dedication at the very front before we get into the science. To quote him, he's talking about an astronaut who's on the moon looking back 
at Earth. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest, but for us it's different. Consider again that pale blue dot. That's here, that's home, that's us, on it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Now, he's talking about this photo called Earthrise, which was sort of an incidental photo. When the Apollo astronauts landed on the moon, they were supposed to take pictures of the moon. But one of these astronauts instead, you know, picked up uh, his camera and turned it back towards Earth. So you get the moonscape, this, this barren, gray, dusty, uninhabitable place with the Earth as this tiny thing in the background. And that image appeared on uh, the cover of Time magazine. It was seen all over the world. And it was one of the instigators for the environmental movement in, the, in, a, in America and around the planet. This idea that we really only have one place to live as humans. And as a catalyst for human behavior, the Earthrise photo, the environmentalist movement has arguably done a lot of great things for the planet. You know, it's, it's a, a hedge against this rampant capitalism edition of our planet that we're, we're doing with our industrial processes. But let's think about that overview effect and what we wanted to accomplish on a larger scale. I think it's really important because in recent times, we have a lot of you know civilian spacecraft companies out there. There's Blue Origin, that's by Jeff Bezos, there's SpaceX, uh, and there's a handful of others that are sending people into space to look back at the world and have a transformative experience, to experience the overview effect. You know, there's even this like social media contest um, called Space for Humanity, which will look around for deserving people around the world, usually social media influencers, and they will send them into space so they can communicate to their broad social media, Instagram, Twitter audiences, at how transformative seeing the world at a distance really is. You go onto their website, you apply to be an astronaut, and, you know, if you win that spacefaring lottery, they'll even send you up. And now while we've been talking about the overview effect since the 60s, it has really gotten a boost in the space tourism age. Maybe this originated in an article that came out in 2016, uh, by a guy named David B. Yandon and Jonathan Irie, uh, graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And it's full of quotes from different astronauts saying uh, how that profound experience of seeing Earth from space changed them fundamentally and maybe forever. You know, uh, you know, just to read one more. Before I flew, I was already aware of how small and vulnerable our planet is. 
But only when I saw it from space and all its ineffable beauty and fragility did I realize that humankind's most urgent task is to cherish and preserve it for future generations. Uh, that's a German cosmonaut named uh, Sigmund John, and it was uh, in 1999 that he said that. And, and there's, it's just full. This article is just full of these examples and what uh, these uh, researchers ultimately said is that it is the experience of awe that is transformational in the human mind and psychology. And experiencing that awe creates a clear break before and after that you just can't go back from. They cite a whole range of changes that happen with awe experiences. Uh, you know, you have pro-social behavior, it helps you with fear and anxiety, gives you perspective, generates altruism. Uh, there's a whole class of larger positive emotions uh, that change you. And it's not just simple and enjoyable uh, feelings. These are long-term changes. And then Yandon writes, the overview effect may trigger more powerful subjective states, most notably self transcendent experiences, which are STEs. And these STEs are temporary feelings of unity characterized by reduced self-salience and increased feelings of new connection. It gives you a really positive view of the overview effect. And it came out right at the time that civilian space programs were getting off the ground. And I think it became an important marketing vehicle for in the scientific literature for the transcendence, the personal transcendence of spaceflight that will give humanity awe and change us. And, and that is the argument uh, with Blue Origin, with... Uh, Elon Musk, you know, it's it's looking at space not only to provide, you know, new habitats for humanity and find new resources, but to change us and to evolve us into, into better people. But I was reading this other book, which is the reason why I started doing this podcast. Um, I got this advanced copy of a book called A City on Mars by Kelly and Zach Weinersmith. Uh, its subtitle is, Can We Settle Space? Should We Settle Space? And have we really thought this through? Which is a, a great snarky subtitle. And there was this section on the overview effect in it, uh, addressing this exact issue around awe. Is it really self-transformative? And they note that the serious problem with the theory around the overview effect is that while it sounds great, there's really no good evidence that it creates long-term changes. And that if it does create long-term changes, well, it's in a class of a lot of other things that also do, such as having a child. You have a kid and you realize that there's something outside your body you need to care for. There's psychedelic experience. There's seeing, you know, Yosemite for the first time. In fact, the overview effect is just a really expensive way to experience awe. And then, and this is my favorite part of this chapter. It's another little long section to quote them. The most damning to this theory is the fact that while there have only been about 600 people in space, there are about 6,000 stories of astronauts behaving badly. Alcoholism, adultery, 
flying planes while on drugs, lying to medical staff, denying climate change, promoting pseudoscience, fighting publicly with other astronauts, and the time an astronaut drove across the country in order to kidnap her ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend. The ex was also an astronaut and had arguably been stringing her along. Least sagely of all, perhaps, was the time that Valentina Tesherkova, the beloved first woman in space, proposed a constitutional amendment in the Russian Duma granting Vladimir Putin the option of adding two additional terms as president. She was later sanctioned by the U.S. government in response to her support for Russia's annexation of Ukraine and the sham referendums used to justify it. Perhaps when viewed from space, we are all equal, but some of us remain more equal than others. You know, again, that's uh, Kelly and Zach Weinersmith, A City on Mars. Uh, it's a book that'll be out in, I believe, October. But the thing to me that is so important about this is, is yeah, sure, you get to space, you have this awe-type experience, and it feels, it feels in your soul so profound. But did it create lasting change? Did it fundamentally rock you to your core so that you became a better person? Well, the Weinersmiths say no. No, it doesn't. Look at the data. Look at what people actually do. The astronauts are just astronauts. And in fact, the overview effect might just be a great marketing ploy to the world. Okay, so you thought, I'm 14 minutes into this podcast and you're thinking, okay, we're doing a podcast about the overview effect. We're going to talk about space and we're going to talk about whether or not the overview effect is what it cracks up to be. No, actually this podcast is not about the overview effect. It's about something that's much more near and dear to this channel, something I've talked about many times. And to get into that, I'm gonna tell you about the guy who wrote that article about the overview effect. I'm gonna give you his title. David B. Yandon is his name. He works at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins University. He is one of the forefront thinkers about the psychedelic revolution which is going on in America right now. And that I've done a podcast on recently, a, a few weeks ago, about the future of legal psychedelics. You know, in Denver, we just legalized mushrooms. And I know a tremendous number of people who are experiencing mushrooms and, um, you know, looking into their own consciousness usually for the better, sometimes for the worst. Um, I've done, you know, a, some mushrooms in my past, including recently, and I had some thoughts. I don't want to undercut the idea that single experiences can transform a person. You know, there's a lot of events that are before and after where something happens, you know, you get in a car accident and your life is different uh, afterwards as it was before, or you have a kid and, and there's this positive thing. You know, there, there's, there's tons of experiences and we are the collection of our experiences. And I believe that revelations are, you know, they're important. They're, they're a big deal. And many times people rate experiences on psychedelic substances as some of the most meaningful things that they've ever done in their lives. 
And you don't just find them in psychedelics. I mean, psychedelics are a big thing right now in the sort of therapeutic context, but you also find them, you can induce them with meditation, with prayer, with um, various types of contemplative practices, uh, with breath work, with ice baths. But psychedelics are certainly a thing that we talk about and we, we are thinking about and we are commercializing right now. And I think it's really important that David Yadin, who began writing about the overview effect while in graduate school and recently got appointed uh, uh, to Johns Hopkins psychedelic and consciousness program. You know, he was a graduate student, now he's an assistant professor. I think it's really important that we're, he's, his own career connects these two um, trajectories, these two sort of disparate subjects, and yet sort of is arguing that they're the same thing to some degree. That, you know, the experience of being blasted off on a rocket and looking back at Earth is not so different than taking psilocybin cubensis, mushrooms, in a natural setting. Now, I think revelation is important because big experiences can be the catalyst for change. But catalyst is really the right way to think about what happens during awe experiences. Does this actually change you or is only that experience of awe, that in-the-moment experience, what you're looking for. Are you seeking sensations or are you actually seeking integration? Now, I'm sure that some astronauts became better people after they had the overview effect and clearly others didn't. And, and what we want to know is, was that intervention of awe, did that actually change you? And there is some great science at out of Johns Hopkins with the MAPS program, even David Yadin's office, right? That shows that there, these can be truly beneficial medicines. But I think we also have to reckon with the fact that it doesn't always make positive changes. Sometimes those change, you know, I like to think of psychedelics as powerful, meditation as powerful, breath work as powerful, but I don't think it is necessarily a silver bullet. One example I'd like to point to and that I have pointed to uh, in my book, uh, The Enlightenment Trap. In that book, I talk about how meditation can sometimes go terribly wrong and lead you down this path of madness and, you know, disconnection from reality. And, you know, I have this other show, it's called The Monk Who Fucked Everything, a brief history of print capital from Tibet to modern America. And I think that's actually my, my best podcast that I've episode that I've ever put out. So, so, you know, just bookmark that in your mind and check that out afterwards. But, you know, there is this moment where someone says they are enlightened. I have understood the true nature and fabric of reality. And they, they get, you know, they get sort of egomaniacal and, and it, it does change them in a way because the enlightenment does have this, you know, when you profess enlightenment, it does have this clear before and after thing, but it doesn't always work right. In fact, most people that I've met, maybe every person that I've met who said that they were enlightened, well, it actually was probably like a mental illness. And in The Enlightenment Trap, I talk about this guy named Geshe Michael Roach. 
who went to India and Tibet, came back wearing red robes, got a huge Buddhist following in America. And, you know, when he had his transcendent experience, he, the way he described it, he was actually serving tea for a teacher that he was studying under in Howell, New Jersey, a Tibetan teacher at the Geshe uh, Rempal Ling Monastery, I believe it was called. And he picked up this tea and then all of a sudden was shot into space, you know, his consciousness was, he wasn't on a rocket, shot into space and he was looking down on an alien world and he realized that every one of those beings on that alien world was his responsibility to take care of with his spiritual meditations. Uh, and that the entire universe was connected to his mind. And, and this experience he was always trying to get back to with his meditations, you know, tantric meditations, various things that he did, uh, ultimately, you know, leading a community of people down this sort of weird tantric sex rabbit hole. And I'm sure he found some things in those tantric sex rabbit holes, but I don't think it made him a better person. I don't think that he became a better person because people began dying on his meditation retreats. People who have been following my work know that I've talked about a lot of other leaders who people have died following their advice. And for all of them, they have this story that they go back to, a revelatory experience, whether it's on a psychedelic drug or um, a meditation experience, jumping into ice water, breath work. There are many, many ways that people have that before and after experience. While there could be a change, it doesn't necessarily have to be a positive one. And the way we have to evaluate it is by looking at their actions over time. Did they really change or not? Now I'll relate to you just one experience where I had an event that could have been considered this awe-inspiring thing that could have, you know, transformed my life in a fundamentally better or worse way. You know, I was in uh, Boston, Massachusetts in a rented apartment that was, my rent at that point was $150 a month. And I was sitting on a couch that was from Goodwill and I had taken some amount of mushrooms and I do not remember how much or even where I got these mushrooms. And I was just sitting on my couch alone and I was in essentially psychedelic superspace. It was a, a, a profound body. My, my body felt different. And, and as I closed my eyes, I saw this glowing ball, that, this white yellow glowing ball in this vast field of empty space behind my eyes. And I looked at that glowing ball and I realized that it was love. It was this beautiful love ball and I wanted to just be near it. And everything outside of that love ball was apathy. And I realized that every human had this choice. I had this choice. I could go towards the love or I could, you know, just wander off into a void, an endless void of apathy. And this, in my mind, this is the closest I have ever come to meeting God. And it was a profound experience for me. I have frequently gone back to this moment and said, wow, that is in, in a way a guidepost for my life. And I'm very grateful to have had it. And I, and I, I do think that power of you know, that mushroom experience was very, very important. And then I also need to point out to you that I didn't do mushrooms or any other psychedelics again for probably eight years. 
after that experience. Eight years of doing other things and just remembering that ball of love and going about, you know, I became a, a graduate student and a journalist and, and did other things over the years. And, and, and I think back to that, I was like, yeah, that was an important lesson and, and I appreciate it. Now, I didn't become enlightened. I didn't start teaching people about the love ball philosophy of Scott Carney, but it was, it was critical to me. I think, however, I could have gone another way. I could have gone, you know, having met the love ball and having seen and having this very awe experience, I could have said, hey, I want to do mushrooms again tomorrow. I want to go meet that love ball again. I want to go bask in the love bally ballness of, of that lesson and keep on relearning it, maybe learning it in some different ways. Now, for whatever reason, and it could have just been happenstance, maybe I didn't know where to find more psilocybin mushrooms. I really don't remember. I didn't go back to it. I just remembered that this was a catalyst for a new type of thought for me. But I will tell you, I know a lot of people who keep going back to their psychedelics. Uh, there's a friend of mine here on Denver. Actually, it's not just one friend. I probably can count one, two, three. Like, probably seven people I know who, who go to ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, every Friday, you know, three times a quarter, you know, six times a quarter. And they just keep going back because they, they keep on wanting to bask in the glory of their own love balls, as it were. And I have to question what is really going on here? Like if we look at psychedelics or awe experiences or whatever, and we say, okay, it, it creates a clear before and after. And every time you do a psychedelic, you get 1% better. You know, in, in always, like if this was really sort of an additive thing, you get 1% better every time. So if you do psychedelics 40 times, are you, you know, with the math of compound interest, that's probably like 100% better, right? Um, are you 100% better when you do that? Well, the answer is, in my experience, clearly no. In fact, a lot of people that I know who keep on going back and keep on finding these sensory experiences and keep on seeking that, you know, they there isn't a change, right? Because they don't have time to integrate it. They don't they don't have time to 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 sit with the idea and and enact and employ those ideas. Instead, they feel that experience of awe and they want to return to it. And that's the problem with, in some ways, sensory seeking, but also teaching. Like imagine the person, maybe you know somebody like this in your life who, who you know, got out of high school, went to college, got a BA, and then they were like, cool, that was such a great experience. I'm, I, I, they studied like philosophy or something. And then they're like, I want to go learn more. So they go to another university and get another BA in, in psychology or biomechanics or another field. And then they got another BA and they got another BA and they just kept on going and, and, and getting bachelor's degrees. Do you think that person is someone you'd want to hire? Do you feel like that person is actually smarter for getting a bunch of bachelor's degrees or are they wasting their time and not living life? I think that's really, really important to know is that, you know, at some point you should be done seeking the teacher 
and then go out and actually integrate it, actually do the things. You know, if you're trying to become a better person, you know, sure, you, you, you can go meet God through prayer or breath work or psychedelics or whatever, but at some point you got to start doing charity. Right? At some point, you have to go start helping people who are in need. You have to actually be kind to other people. And you want to see those dividends pay off over time. And that's the only way we can truly evaluate whether these interventions actually worked. I think that doing psychedelics infrequently is a great idea. Uh, I, I am a huge proponent of taking a risk with a psychedelic, because it's always scary before you take it. You don't know where your trip is going to go, but, but trying it and seeing what that, that experience can do to change you. And then integrate, 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 and don't go back for years in many cases. Months at the very, very least. And I think if you do that, well, it's gonna be really, really useful. You know, again, remember, the law of diminishing returns. And you know, there's another podcast that I did called the, the Law of Speedy Gains, where I talk about how, you know, when you try something new, at first you have enormous improvements. Like, you know, you start dancing and you didn't know how to dance before, but now all of a sudden you're doing a very mediocre salsa uh, at some sort of dance lesson, dance club, and you just got like a billion percent better at salsa. But if you just keep on taking salsa lessons, you can eventually get much, much better at salsa. But the amount of effort you need to do sort of tapers off. The curve hits sort of an exponential limit and it becomes harder and harder to get better at salsa. So it's actually much more advantageous for a person to embrace the idea that these speedy gains happen and instead try lots of different things. But if you keep on going back to your same old teacher, well, what is it that you haven't learned? And that's really the main question. What have you not learned? Why do you have to keep on going back to a psychedelic? Are you just looking for that euphoria? Are you becoming an addict? Can you, I mean, you can't really get addicted to psychedelics or, you know, the overview effect in, in the same way you can't say heroin or cigarettes. Um, that, that's not how that works. You don't have the same sort of dopamine, uh, you know, receptor change where you go through withdrawal if you don't have it. But you can be constantly sensory seeking. And that sensory seeking, well, that could be a, a bad habit that doesn't actually change you. It just makes you feel like you're changing because you're having that experience. You have the feeling of change, but that change is not lasting and it's not real. And of course, you know, I've, I've I think I've hammered that point home enough at this point. And now I want to actually contradict myself because the world is complex and, you know, I don't have all of the answers and my maxims don't hold true in all time and space because here's another thing that I learned this week. So I went into the mountains with a really good friend of mine onto his ranch. I think it's like 6,000 acres of pristine wilderness. And I hadn't done mushrooms. I think it was for, I think four years, I hadn't done mushrooms, three or four years, I haven't done mushrooms. I haven't had any psychedelic experiences. And I had the intention of going out there and like, you know, I wanted to get right with some questions about death that I've been having lately. And I wanted to, you know, I know that in the past I've, I've encountered death in, you know, both personally and, and in the psych psychedelic prayer states. And I wanted to do it again. 
because I have some questions. And, and I went off and, uh, you know, I was on this mountain looking out down at this field. And my friend, who actually does do quite a few more psychedelics than I do, was with me. And one thing that I noticed, he was one of these guys who does, you know, more, I, I don't know how frequently he does it, but more frequently than I do. And one thing that I noticed is that when I was initially in that trip and you sort of feel these body sensations coming on, you're like, oh, it's coming. It's like you're going up that roller coaster. And, and you never know when you take a, a substance like that where it will actually end up. And you're going up that roller coaster, up that roller coaster, and you don't know if you're gonna get blasted off into space. And, and there's some anxiety that's associated with that. And he had some of the anxiety too. But one thing that I could see in his mannerisms and that he described to me was that once we hit that peak, once we started seeing the images out there in front of us, he was like, okay, that's as intense as it's gonna get. Like, like he knew that first peak is the highest peak, or maybe it's the second peak. I don't really remember how it works, but, but it's like it, the mushrooms come on in waves. And he's like, okay, it's not gonna get more intense than this. You know, we're seeing these patterns uh, as I'm looking out at this field of grass. It almost looks like an ocean because the wind is going over and there's like waves in the grass. And those are actually real waves. That's not psychedelic waves. But then I'm seeing like symbols of like Mayan, Mayan-esque symbols, like snakes and faces uh, superimposed over that grass. And that is part of the hallucination or whatever is going on in a psychedelic trip. That's what we're seeing. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is where it's gonna be. We're not gonna get more overwhelmed than this. And I found that actually really reassuring because as someone who's less experienced in psychedelics, um, it was good to know that someone does. So indeed, if you're gonna be leading people in psychedelics, or if you have more experience than someone else, it can be very beneficial to guide someone and say, look, I know where this is going and you're gonna be all right. And so for that sort of person, I actually do think that there is benefit to going a little bit deep and actually trying it more times because you're trying to guide and help other people on their own experiences. So from that perspective, if you're a guide, well, you are being helpful, right? You, you are, in a way, becoming a better person. I'm gonna qualify that. It doesn't make you like the best person, but you are improving a skill that other people can benefit from. And I appreciate that. And the last thing that I wanna bring up is, well, maybe a bigger question um, uh, about the nature of reality and the nature of psychedelic experiences. And, and so here's the thing. I was sitting on that grassy knoll looking out at the waves of grain and I was seeing these Mayan-esque symbols and he was also seeing those Mayan-esque symbols. We sort of describe the same snake patterns and masks in the grass in front of us. And I had to wonder, well, he had to wonder. He was like, well, wait, are the psychedelics changing our perception in a way that we are seeing more of actual reality out there? You know, because one of the things our brain does is discard information that actually does exist in the universe, uh, you know, for utility. So 
and when you, you, you shut down pieces of your brain, you might, you know, one theory would be that you shut down that filter and you're seeing the real reality is that in some way, maybe there are those masks and snakes out there in the world and that is real reality and you're not, and, and normally we don't see it. Another idea, of course, could be that we have um, the psychedelic produces these sorts of images. It's sort of like, you know, it draws the picture for whatever reason. Um, for in both of us, it, it, the psychedelic instigates um, snake pictures that we somehow share. Another theory could also be, or is actually the more likely theory, is that we have a shared history of some uh, sort and we associate Mayan symbols with, you know, from our past, from our conversations, from our life, and somehow those, you know, joining with the psychedelic are projected on our, you know, vision. I don't know how, what is going on. I can't, I, I can't tell you for sure. I think the more likely one is, is there's a sort of a, just sort of a memory that's replaying, but it's bizarre that we could describe the same things. What does that actually mean? Is there a way to do an experiment that would give us some interesting data around that? And we came up with this idea. What if we brought two artists, and I'm a terrible artist, to the same spot and they couldn't look at their easels or their drawing boards and they drew the images that they saw. Could those match up with each other or would they not? I feel like in a lot of psychedelic art, we see very similar tropes. Uh, you know, there's sort of a, a character to what happens in psychedelic art. You know, if you're on DMT, uh, I understand that there's sort of crystalline quartz-like looking images that come out in, in that sort of psychedelic art. Maybe there's something, some sort of fun experiment to run to sort of poke at that question as what are truly shared experiences. I, I will note that when I, when I was doing saunas in The Wedge, in my book, The Wedge, you know, the shamans who were leading us through it would try to understand what we were feeling as I was in the sauna to see if I was getting too hot or not by placing their hands on my body. By placing their hands there, they could see whether I was physically hotter than them in which case that could be a problem and they would try to cool me down and, and they use their own relationship to my body through their sensory system to gauge the way I was feeling with the environment. Well, a psychedelic is an environment. So maybe we have created this environment and, and we were sharing an actual experience that they weren't just individual chemical reactions in ourselves, but, but something that was shared between us. I don't know. I really wish I knew, but I think it's possible to run an experiment that will get some cool results and maybe I will go do that in the future. Until then, I wanna say that I really appreciate you tuning in to this podcast. Uh, if you haven't listened to those other episodes that I mentioned, The Law of Speedy Gains and uh, the monk who fucked everything. Those are, you know, good listens related to the stuff that I'm talking about here. Those are episodes number six and number 11. Thank you again. And from Pokey Bear LLC in Denver, Colorado, this is Scott Carney Investigates. <laughs>